Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle. You're listening to A Private View from Macabre, uh, an exhibition fantasized by artist Benjamin Spires and co-curated with Jacob Angar. This is a short intro because there's a lot of content you will not want to miss a single word. Over to you, Benjamin Spires. Well, thank you, Maeve. It's lovely to see you again and oh, talk to you. to have you here. Thank you. Uh, so I'm Ben Spires, uh, and I'm a London-based painter, and I've been working in London for about the last 30 years. Studied at Goldsmiths in the early 1990s, and I've been working as an artist and for a long time a lecturer at London art schools. Um, the last 10 years I've been working purely as a painter and exhibiting primarily in London, but also in the US and around Europe. I show now with Saatchi Yates Gallery, who have a large space on Cork Street. And I had a big solo show with them last year in September. Yes, you did. We still haven't recovered. It was magnificent. <laughs> oh, thank you, mate. Uh, with about 20, I think it was 20 paintings in that show. I didn't straight away want to dive into producing another solo show of the same size. So after a lot of conversations with Phoebe and Arthur, who run the gallery, we talked about the idea of doing an ambitious group show. And then they initially suggested the idea that I might be interested in curating a show. Initially I was unsure, I wasn't particularly excited by the idea of curating just a show of contemporary painting, but I think Arthur and Phoebe know me quite well and how interested I am in the history of painting, and they began the discussions with Christie's with regard to the idea of working on this show. They talked about it with Christie's before mentioning it to me and then brought it to me as a fait accompli. Beautiful dealers, which was, beautiful art dealers to yeah. work for. That's just great. Yeah, it was amazingly exciting. So, of course, I was instantly thrilled by the idea and it got my imaginative juices flowing straight away. So I started putting together mock-ups of artists and artworks, like a, a dream, a fantasy selection of what I would have with a no-holds-barred approach to the show. And then I was introduced to Jacob, uh, who works at Christie's, and we began the discussion about how we could possibly sort of work from both of our initial thoughts about both the theme and the works that we might like to include and then bring about something that would actually kind of work in the real world. Now, the title of the show is Macabre. Yes. And you chose not to use the word curated and you used the word fantasized. Fantasized. We, we decided on coming up with the phrase fantasized. Um, initially perhaps in a superficial kind of way, it was just that we all felt that the word curated is overused. And also there's an opportunity with showing at this time of year associated with Halloween and with the subject matter of something perhaps a little bit more playful and a little bit riskier. And I think we were just knocking some ideas around about words that one might use as an alternative to curated. And this just seemed to conjure up well, actually, one of the other words was conjured by. Um, but I think these are words that have uh, connotations that lead, lead towards something more mysterious or otherworldly. Um, and magical. And magical. And almost entertainment with inspiration, mm. with education. It delivers on every level. Mm. Well, I find one of the things that really inter interests me about the macabre is that the leading association is one that takes you towards a towards darkness, but it's invariably associated with something quite playful, and some of the most macabre artists are also the most entertaining ones to actually look at, you know. Jacob, will you introduce yourself and what you do and how this happened from your point of view? 
very happy to. My name is Jacob Agner. I work here at Christie's within the Impressionist and Modern Department, where I'm a specialist, specializing specifically in private sales. So private sales within the auction house is when the auction house steps in as a form of an art dealer or a gallerist for that matter. And we put on either exhibitions or we do private treaty transactions sort of beyond or underneath the, the public eye of the auction house, um, of the auctions. And um, yeah, I've seen you with clients at Christie's talking to them the way an art dealer or an, a gallerist would. So it's it's wonderful to see the space being used in in that kind of private selling way. Yeah, and I, I spent many years working for gallerists in the past, and I feel very closely linked with them as, as myself. Um, this exhibition and exhibitions we keep here, we want to make them cross-departmental so we can fit in anything from old masters to 19th century to decorative arts and up into contemporary art, right? And I think this exhibition idea was one to link them all together. And that's how we started. And then the link to Ben came via my colleague Victoria Graham, who is uh, working for the contemporary department, and she is now, um, well, they are engaged with one of the directors at Sachi Yates. And as soon as she proposed the idea, I absolutely loved it because I've seen two of Ben's shows. I was, you know, I, I adored his work, I adored how much it linked art history. And just as I walked around those shows, I, I remember thinking for myself, I wish I can talk with the artist about every painting here because I want to pick them apart. Oh, was this from Brock? Oh, did you steal that idea from this artist? And where, where is this coming from in a way? So it all came very natural for me when Ben's involvement was suggested. And then I think from there we've had a very joyful journey. A journey that was what, a year? A year-long journey? Because getting this body of work together couldn't have been easy. We're talking about Adillion, Radon, Autodix. How long have you been talking? It, well, first it was a half a year of internal sort of getting the, the ducks in a row and getting a budget to submit it and so on. And then I think the, the phase of, of getting all the works here and getting talking with a lot of clients and collectors took yeah, roughly 10, 10 months, I would say, uh, with an increasing pace and crescendo towards the very end because as it is with all of this, everyone agrees to something in the last minute, right? right. Uh, so the last month here has been extraordinarily busy, uh, and it, but it's been shaping up extremely finely. We had a vague wish list and artists that we absolutely needed and subjects we Who absolutely wanted to find. Who was the wish list and what did you absolutely need and how many pictures are in this exhibition? Going chronologically, you know, we needed a Bosch. We needed some some really fun Bosch works, but also the yes, yes, uh, but also sort of the the classical subjects of, of the old masters, such as Lucrezia, which we have a fabulous Cranach by. We tried for a Judith and the head of Hall of Fairness that we didn't get in the end, but <laughs> we moved on, and then going into the whole symbolist movement. We have a couple of strong examples and then on to the strange German um, sort of 20s feel with George Gross and Dix. And we're particularly well represented by Dix by having not only a masterpiece of big oil from 1930, one of his Neue Sacklerskeits periods, but we also have a great 1918 self-portrait and then 
two prints here. And you mentioned earlier, when you were looking at Benjamin's work, you wondered where his influences were coming from. It seems to me the two of you have curated a show illuminating the influences, which really makes me understand Ben's work a lot easier. I can't think of a happier place for one of my paintings to nestle than in between the extraordinary Otto Dix and the Lucas Cranach. I mean, it really is the greatest thrill to see my work on the wall, having a conversation with some of the, its sort of <laughs> great-great-great-grandparents. And they um, looked like contemporaries. That's where time collapsed. I didn't understand where time was anymore. I mean, it, it, oh, suddenly Nathaniel Mary Quinn's work looks ancient, and you made the older work look contemporary. It was quite mind-blowing. And I think, for me, art-making can be... Um, I mean, obviously, one art is always made within a social and historical context, but I think there is, well, you know, several, lots of art critics have written about this over the years, the sort of timeless element of art making, which is something to do with the thought process of being in the studio and wrestling with the materials and your own kind of sort of existential way of being in the world and trying to kind of fabricate something from that. And I think there is, in all the best art, something quite outside of the time in which it was made, which kind of communicates, which, like a, without wanting to sound too hippish, like an energy that kind of comes out of the work. And I think that it's really, really exciting when you see work that's dressed in the costume of its time, but it's actually exuding an energy which is completely relatable and has an emotional quality which kind of jumps off the wall and makes you feel something. And we really wanted to highlight this dialogue, right, across the ages. And because yesterday I went to Tate Modern and saw the new Cezanne show. And they had sort of this similar perspective of on labels, always writing if an artist had owned that painting in the past. One thing to see Cezanne as not only a dusty old person, but someone who keeps his relevance, and Jasper Johns, many other names out there. In the same vein, we have now on many lot cards next to the artworks, we have short text that Ben has written in his form of a fun dialogue of his reaction to that and how they could remain relevant also today. Shall we walk around and actually let Ben tell that story? I think that's a really good idea. One of the really exciting challenges about curating this show and being involved in the arrangement of the works within it is that the spaces are quite varied. There are some larger rooms and some very small rooms, and they are laid out in a slightly labyrinthine fashion. There really is a sense, and I've experienced this as I've taken people around, of a journey. So you come in and you see one set of things, and then there are different eye lines, and you see works juxtaposed in different ways as you move through the gallery and you have angle from one room into another. And we found that really exciting. You know, all the decisions were made around thinking about these different lines of sight through the spaces. We're currently in a very small room with just three paintings in it, and I find it one of the most exciting and visually rewarding arrangements, partly because the connections that are made between the pictures are very strong and palpable. Anyone would be able to grasp the connections, and yet at the same time they are full of mystery and surprise. And perhaps Jacob could tell us something about the works that are in this room. Absolutely. The three paintings hanging here are first a lovely painting by Ludwig Meidner, who was a German expressionist, painted in 1912. 
Alongside it hangs two paintings, which are both by followers of Bosch. So they are both from the 16th century, one of them by, by Schwanenberg, and the other one we cannot identify the exact hand of, but it's by, by a follower of him. And it's interesting how all these three are landscapes, which sort of explodes towards you with great energy and exuberance. One of the things I think that Bosch does so well is to create a sense of a single space opening up, a recessive space like a classic landscape, but often the sense of space is tilted up, so it gives you this large flat plane, which he then subdivides into little pockets of activity, and within each pocket he comes up with something twisting and convoluted and inventive and macabre, and it's very dynamic visually, like a, it's like looking at a patch of swirling water with eddy currents going in lots and lots of different directions. And it's amazing to turn from this painting painted in around about 1600 to a painting from 1912. And the space is organized in a very similar way. It's fragmented, almost cohesive, but it's recognizably the space recedes, but it's broken up into little areas of activity where there are directional marks and explosions which make the eye zip around the space in a way that is actually really surprisingly reminiscent of a paint, this painting by the follower of Bosch. And the more you look at it, the more you see parallels, little areas of local colour that exist in relationship to each other, and you go across and you can see some of the same thought processes happening in this painting, which is very, very different in almost every way, and yet it's so lovely to see the juxtaposition and begin to see parallels and like a, a conversation happening across hundreds of years. An interesting part in the attribution of an old master, that is to say, to know exactly which hand that has painted it, is that it's particularly hard with these hellscapes, the Bosch works, because they were painted during the Inquisition. So if you put your name to it, and then some very religiously minded, hard-headed people might go after you, and throw you in jail, right? which is exactly what happened with Svanenberg when he exhibited in the storefront uh, a hellscape of witches and, and other fun creatures. And that is why it's very hard to pinpoint exactly who made them because they're almost never signed or, or dated. So you have to go by stylistic technique and this is just brilliantly technically made too and it's painted on copper which also creates this luminosity to it. I just wish that Ben one day might try himself to paint on copper. We've talked about that, yeah, absolutely. The show macabre is made up of seven or eight rooms, uh, but when I walked into one of the rooms towards the back of the building, uh, it, the lighting was different, the color was different, and something about it just struck me as the way we should be looking at art all the time, where contemporary work is alongside historical work and, and everything is part of a composition. Uh, gentlemen, can you speak about this room? We managed to find quite a few great juxtapositions throughout the show. When works in a rather remarkable way speak to one another across the centuries. And on the main wall here we see one of Ben's works that he painted this year, uh, which is of this fabulous nude woman holding up her hands 
and throughout the surface he's incised it, which I presume is the end of the brush. It's well, actually it's actually with an etching tool. Etching. It's an incisor from an etching tool. So. Fantastic. Yeah. And next to it hangs a picture from the 17th century by the great artist Sanchini, which depicts the, the giant Orion as he flees across the landscape and he's just lost his eyesight, so he's sort of trembling. And also him has his hands up in this great rhyme and with Ben's work and obviously being a 350 years old work it shows a bit of crackler on it too which gives this texture to it that also is in wonderful harmony with, with the other work. Mm. I think from a subject matter point of view I, I really enjoy the fact that it, the painting by Saracini is a depiction of a, a giant who has just lost his sight and in my painting the top half of the face has been obliterated into shadow when you see the picture in a raking light, you can see that there's a certain amount of impasto underneath the dark paint. And actually that gives a, an indication of the history of the painting because initially it was a, a full face. But also interestingly, the eyes were closed in the painting when I made the full face before I pushed the face back into shadow. So mine too was a picture of a person reaching out their hands in a slightly speculative, perhaps even tentative kind of way, who was at least it was, there was an indication that perhaps this person was sightless. And I thought, I think that's, I don't know, there's something very poetic about this juxtaposition across the centuries of sightless. Also people who loom large and appear to be kind of moving out of the picture space, reaching forward. Uh, there's something poignant about the fact that they're coming forward towards you, but don't actually have the ability to see you as they come forward. This is an exciting wall from Julie Curtis to Ollie Apps to take it away. Well, this wall has some of the artists that I've brought into the exhibition, some contemporary living painters. For a lot of the time that I was involved in this show, I was actually living in New York. So some of the discussions that I was having with artists, so for instance, one of my good friends, Ollie App, uh, who was a student of mine, Ollie and I both in all sorts of ways changed each other's careers. At the time I interviewed Ollie for a place at the art school which I was teaching at, he had actually been rejected from every other institution to which he had applied. And I was blown away by his work. I really felt that he was one of the most astonishingly interesting and talented students I'd ever interviewed. And I remember sitting in here thinking, I really hope this person comes here. I have no doubt, though, that he'll have been offered places at every art college in the world and we won't get him. And it turned out that he hadn't been offered a place. And the fact that I offered him this place, you know, it, it, he was feeling at the time unsure about whether he wanted to carry on attempting to make art. And uh, coming, you know, we, we, even before he came to the institution, we were already established a kind of a connection with each other. So he, after studying at the school, well, in fact, even whilst he was still at the art school, he began to establish an international reputation exhibiting and selling his work and has gone on to become, you know, a global superstar. Ollie changed my career in that there was a moment where he posted my work on his Instagram and within four hours of him putting my work on his Instagram account, I'd been offered shows in LA, New York and London. And it was quite startling for you. I, th I remember you thinking your phone had 
gone wrong. I, I remember thinking that it was a spoof. Um, something strange had happened. It was completely extraordinary how that one moment of a sort of social media moment utterly changed the course of my career and my life. Sorry. Back to the conversation between generations of artists. Absolutely. And yes. that's what I like about it, because we weren't part of the Instagram generation, so it was mm. sort of until we realised how huge an impact it has on the art world now. Yeah. Ah, oh, this is one of the pieces that has the writing on it. So uh, some of them have it, some of them don't. So I'm guessing with this amazing mouth, dog, all of it, that you've got a lot of thoughts going on here. Juan's an artist that I was introduced to. Interestingly, I was introduced to him by Ollie, and Ollie, I came, became aware of his work because Ollie sent me a link via Instagram to Juan's Instagram page, and I was instantly fascinated by his work. It deals with lots of the things that I find very exciting in painting, a, a real determination to make very uh, hard-won, extremely well-resolved, ambitious figurative imagery, but with a complicated range of references, whether it's to uh, cartoons, contemporary cartoons or animation, going all the way back through to our historical references. He, he really reminds me, so a lot of his work makes me think of sort of beautiful Spanish still lives from the, go the Golden Age. Um, they have that fastidious intensity of observation where every small nuance feels like it needs to be articulated with precision and love. Um, and yet he's lavishing this attention on a really strange image of a gaping mouth uh, of a, this dog with a quite an ambiguous facial expression, beautifully rendered drips of drool coming off the jowls. Uh, the mouth is being held open by a forked twig and it's very unclear as to whether the forked twig is stopping the dog from biting someone or whether the dog is carrying the fork twig carefully in its mouth. It's a really an image of something that feels very intense but also quite hard to pin down what's actually going on. And I find that that tension that comes from something being articulated very clearly and emphatically, but we're left with a lot of doubt as to what it is that's actually happening, whether who's who's the victim, who's the aggressor. There's a narrative that feels like it's being pointed to, but never made clear. And yet, yeah, we're left with this lingering feeling of intensity. I find it very exciting. And I think the, the juxtaposition with Ollie's work, because these two paintings are hung next to each other. So I'll just quickly describe Ollie's work. Ollie's painting is an image of a cat, black. Uh, a black cat even. Uh, and, and for centuries, animals are often the harbingers of the mysterious and the Absolutely. unknown and whether the soul exists and being in control or out of control. And there's a lot of uh, ritual around animals so there are all kinds of things like if a black cat walks in front of your path then it in some cultures it means it's good luck but in other cultures it might be if it walks behind your path you know there's all these sort of structures around it. Um, interestingly Ollie's depicted this cat as a dead cat. The painting is called Roadkill. There's a sort of stylized chunk missing out of the ear that's uh, reminiscent of a cat's chewed ear when they've all been fighting to each other, and the cat's missing one eye, and we can see reflected in the other eye uh, a registration number just faintly there, uh, which obviously alludes to the title Roadkill. So we're looking at a portrait of a cat that at first glance doesn't necessarily look like it's dead, but the title and the reflection and the, the 
glistening drop of blood emerging from its nose do suggest a somewhat unhappy outcome I for that hope. creature. They have nine lives, I firmly believe it. Well, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and this painting is a painting that Ollie made specifically for this show. And interesting that you mentioned Nine Lives because he's just had a, a solo show at Semio's Gallery in Paris, which, were, which was called Nine Lives. Um, and it was the entire subject matter of the exhibition was cats, so, uh, and black cats. Julie Curtis and her relationship with hair and nails yeah. and vegetarianism, animals. Yeah. Yeah. Julie's a fantastic artist and, a, and, a, and a, a great person. I'm really very fond of Julie. I had the pleasure of interviewing her and she's very generous. She's extremely generous. She's generous with her time. She's very generous with promoting the work of other artists. She's very involved in her art community in New York and an extremely talented original artist. I love, again, Another, another sort of parallel with um, Juan and Ollie's work is the dialogue between, um, let's call it loosely sort of cartoon-ish imagery, and then that cartoonish just being meshed with a, a very kind of profoundly, a profoundly sophisticated understanding of more historical methods, both methods of painting, but also ways of thinking about imagery. So it's this sort of collision of contemporary contemporary imagery, imagery with a, a deep historical appreciation. I think one of the great ironies and paradoxes that's within the, the macabre is that despite the treating some very gruesome and morbid and hellish depiction of, of the human condition, it's also something very, very life-affirming and sort of the core of what it is to be human that's within it. We're confronted with something here. We're now in another gallery where we're looking at a sculpture uh, by McCannell of, of the sort of Homeric goddess um, Circe. And she, if she didn't like someone, she, she made them into animals. And she's sort of reaching for, her, for us with her arms and hands outstretched with snakes all around her, and we feel confronted, but yet so, so alive in a way. Next to it, we have a Duma of, it's called bondage, of a human figure being you know, tied up and, and, and almost claustrophobic at it. So you have works that's pulling in different direction, but all of them makes us feel something, and maybe feel more alive. One of the things that I find exciting in this room, and it's not a historical theme, it's actually just a, a visual and bodily theme, is the, what's happening with hands in the different works in this room. We've got one, a sculpture and four paintings, which the primary signifier is a hand, and it's a either a clenched or a hand with twisting, bendy fingers, which are bending the wrong way, gripping things, gripping skulls, one painting where the figure, the, the woman seems to be almost, she's clutching at her chest as though she's creating a cage to protect her heart. Uh, my own painting in this, picture, in this room is a picture called Pinky. Um, and the Pinky is a reference to her raised little finger. Um, and the little finger is bending slightly the wrong way and it's twisting and creating a, a particular sort of curve. The whole painting is a an interlocking set of 
horn-like curved forms that seem to spill out like coral from a central figure. And I'm really fascinated by the way in which a gesture, a bodily gesture, which might carry a meaning or an emotional intensity, seems to sort of radiate out from gesture. And I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of dissolve the figure into forms that reach out and uh, in the way, like, thing, like a sense of a finger, but almost like a thought kind of coming out of the form. And it's amazing to see this historical parallel between my idea of how that might look and uh, painters from 100 years ago and sculptures from further away find it, uh, to see parallels between that sort of gesture and way of thinking about the body. Yes, and we just started this now, just in time for Halloween, but as we were almost finished with the show, I think all of us involved were so enthusiastic about it, so we decided to extend it all the way into December to the 9th of December to overlap when we have our big old master views and auctions on. And, um, and we we're welcoming everyone into the galleries. Benjamin Spires, Jacob Anger, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been a terrific conversation. If you haven't seen Macabre at Christie's, I urge you to come down. I know it will change the way you see contemporary art and change the way you see the old masters. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Maeve Doyle's Private View. This podcast is produced by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. The music is by Korshid Homi. Thank you for listening. 